welcome to Estradi Illusions episode. Let's just throw out a random number and say this will be episode uh, 18, and it either is or it isn't, but the, the running joke of not knowing the episode number is maybe getting a little stale, but it's Pride Month, and I'm super excited to welcome Caitlin Burns to the podcast. Caitlin is the first openly uh, transgender uh reporter on Capitol Hill, and uh, she writes about so many fascinating things, and I'm so excited that she's here to talk about all of that stuff. Caitlin, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, thank you uh, for having me on. You know, um, I'm always excited to do um, these these interviews for podcasts, mostly because um, I don't have the attention span to do my own podcast. Um, but I'm not sure I do either. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, about myself, uh, at this moment, I'm a freelance journalist, uh, based in Washington, DC. Um, I cover uh, mostly LGBT issues, um, but I also cover reproductive health policy for, um, Teen Vogue and, uh, MTV News and a couple other, um, publications that will accept my pitches. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I'm a parent, uh, divorcee and, um, uh, nation Twitter personality, I guess you could say. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. No Twitter. Yeah, that's, uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's good. Podcasting has been a great way to inter, uh, to interact with people who I mostly know through Twitter, but, Twitter is such a dumpster fire. Oftentimes it's good to just, you know, take a step back and talk about, uh, talk to people outside of that, uh, particular train wreck. But it's, um, speaking of pride month, I just wanted, it's just a question that I've been asking. Basically. I even asked the, um, uh, a gay friend I know who works at our local, uh, pie pie place about this question it's just something i've been asking pretty much every gay person i've come into contact with is how are you enjoying this particular pride month it feels like there's a lot more so than ever and i guess that's just maybe a product of the exposure but um it feels like the brands are kind of taking over this pride month yeah and also um you know a lot of my experience of pride is colored by the fact that i do live in washington dc and we do have one of the largest um pride celebrations in the country and it is also heavily corporatized um and i'm not so excited about that like this year um i didn't go to so in dc they have a parade and then they have a festival and they're on two different days um and I went to the parade this year, and uh, I actually ended up um, hopping the fence and marching with a couple of friends who I didn't know were in the parade uh, until the end of it. Um, and that was before they sort of canceled uh, the end of the parade when um, there was, um, you know, reports of an active shooter that ended up being proven false, but it triggered a stampede that injured a bunch of people. And they, they ended up canceling the parade, uh, partway through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thankfully I wasn't in the area for that. I had already sort of hit the, the, the local LGBT bar. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I don't know if this is just me like getting older or me getting older and more cynical or 
some combination of this, but like, I don't, I don't really get excited for pride very much. Right. Um, it's sort of just evolved into a thing that I do with friends or to see my friends because my friends go to pride. And like, if none of my friends went to pride, I probably wouldn't go myself. Although it's kind of funny because I, I just so happened, it just so happens that I'll be in New York in a week and a half, um, for, for their pride. Um, so I, I might end up going to that and I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to end up going with any like of my New York city friends, but, um, I just think that, um, you know, pride has sort of gotten away from our roots, uh, which I think makes me sad. You know, um, it, it started as a police riot, you know, against state oppression of, um, LGBT people and LGBT identities and our gathering places. And you're starting to see this like creep of, um, state action again, particularly against the trans community. And it's just, it feels really hollow when you have, you know, a gay pride brought, brought to you by Coca-Cola while Trump is there going, huh, too bad you can't have healthcare anymore. It's just sort of, what's the point of it at this point? Like, you know, yeah, it's a fundraiser for the, you know, local LGBT advocacy groups and whatnot, but it's just, I don't think it, it serves its purpose any longer. Um, so, you know, I just don't get as excited about that as I do for like, you know, political rally for trans rights or, um, or whatnot. Uh, and maybe that's just my personality, you know, being on the wonkier policy side of things. The political rally does sound like more fun. Uh, <laughs> it's really not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> do they hand out, do they hand out the, uh, we, in the Long Beach Pride, we get the uh, they had the the Long Beach Transit Association put out their branded rainbow flag, and it's like exactly the same as it was the year before, except the date was changed. I'm like, do people oh collect God. these? Do people care? I uh, it, it 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 it's. I mean, so I had a similar reaction to that uh, last month. I was at Disneyland, and I go there a lot. I love Disneyland, but it's. Just, just the relationship. When, I, when I saw that they had this just uh, little section of rainbow, very clearly meant to be in the sort of Pride style uh, boutique of products, which were you know typically Disney overpriced, maybe maybe not unreasonably so relative to all their other stuff. But I'm looking at that, being like, there are more rainbow themed products on this rack than there ever have been gay characters in this uh, company. It, it just in all of their films. And I'm yeah. looking there thinking to myself, who am I to say to somebody, you don't deserve to celebrate pride. That's not really not what pride is about. And yet on the flip side, I'm like, yeah. what, like what are we, what are we doing here? Yeah. The other thing too is like, um, and I made a joke about this on Twitter, uh, I think last week or the week before, but, um, Budweiser in the UK came out with like these, um, fly, like, like they took, the basically all of the different flags that you see. So not just rainbow flag, but like the asexual flag and the lesbian flag and the trans pride oh, yeah, flag. Yeah. And they just made like beer, like cups 
in each of the flags. So like the other part of me is like, you know, oh, corporate pride, it's just too much. And then, and then there's another side of me that goes, you know what? I would totally drink Budweiser from a trans branded like cup. So, you know, I, I don't, again, but again, like I don't go seeking that stuff out when it's here in town. I didn't go to the festival where they're all handing out their, you know, uh, corporate branded stuff. So, um, I don't know. It's just, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Pride, pride meant a lot more to me when I was still like, I guess half closet or not, not everybody knew, um, or just like the year or two after, yeah. I guess maybe the, the first, the first, uh, pride in the Trump administration, but, um, yeah, or like the first pride that that I went to was one of the first times I ever like left my house in a skirt. So like, you know, it just doesn't do it for me like that anymore. Yeah, and I always I, it, it's always great to hear perspectives from outside of uh, Southern California. Like people always say, um, I, I, or at least I encounter when I travel. Oh, I've never interacted with a transgender person before. I've never met a transgender person before, and. In Long Beach, at least, I have the luxury, and it's it's like weird to even think of it as such, where I can walk down the street and see transgender people I don't know walk by. And I guess just sort of my my experience with li- living in a place that's relatively tolerant, mm-hmm. although I uh, the city still has uh, some of its problems with uh, hate crime still, but just just the the matter of like baseline acceptance is always uh, different, and and. An interesting segue of that, I, I read in one of your articles, it's, it, it rang true to me because it's something that I, I repeat a lot of the time to people who maybe don't engage with this kind of stuff on the level that we do, but covering Capitol Hill, you encounter a lot of the most, or a lot of really the architects of the most anti-LGBTQ, the most conservative uh people on a daily basis and you you share a bathroom with them on a lot of occasions and you know nothing happens yeah. it, it's 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 like a radical normalcy that that people don't really seem to understand that this isn't some like you know like just just apocalypse that's yeah. plaguing western civilization i mean the, the the one thing you have to understand about about dc politicians is um uh, 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 what they say is is all a show um for their constituents right so like um it, it gets attention when these you know um th- these old legislators are ranting on and on and on about the dangers of of trans women but then when i show up you know in front of them um, asking them questions about some policy issue, you know, it's still, you know, it, they're still politicians and I'm still the press, right? Like there's a decorum there that um, seems to hold, at least for me. Uh, and, and I don't know if it's because, you know, I pass or whatever, but like I've never been given any grief uh, just walking through um you know any of the areas on capitol hill um even when i share spaces with conservatives so like uh, i think i think i end up thinking that a lot of this stuff is really just to try to appeal to 
the voters who are getting fed this stuff, you know, through right wing media, this negative, these right. negative stereotypes about trans people, particularly trans women. And and there is a it's astonishing to see how sort of a, a I mean, there's really no other word for it, but obsessed a lot of these publications like uh, the National Review or the Federalist or Breitbart or e- even even a more mainstream conservative publication like the Wall Street Journal, their uh, opinion section. My father, even he canceled his uh subscription and he talked to uh he had a conversation with paul jojo about it of of, like what are you guys doing and you don't so much of uh so much of media whether it's cable news or whatnot is is kind of centered around like the 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 give and take of the the right versus left uh sort of on on a balancing scale but from that perspective conservative media is covering trans issues way more than liberal you've written about this a lot it's 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 a it's a very it's a very bizarrely uncomfortable dynamic because in a lot of ways they're totally framing the way that the broader public engages with these types of issues it 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 feels like in a lot of ways these uh sort of uber right publications or the uber right uh opinion columnists who are writing about them are setting the the framework through which we discuss um these topics and not not just from a more sensible perspective (laughs) You, you, if you if you only engaged with transgender topics through the National Review, you might think that you know that that that, that women are needing to organize militias to protect their bathrooms. That's just totally. I've done a lot of traveling to red states. Um, the I, I have once in my entire life ever had somebody comment about me being in a uh, uh, women's bathroom, and it was down the street. And I was wearing jeans and I wasn't wearing a ton of makeup and it shattered. It was early on in my transition. It shattered my self-confidence for a while, but I've had a lot of that. I've I've gone to the bathroom a lot of times since that. And I just, I look at the way that these publications are engaged, are are talking about this stuff. And it's like, there's no basis in reality. This is just nonsense. Yeah. You know, I think the thing to remember is that um, we are... Uh, it's twofold, really. The first is is that we are, um, you know, the canaries in the coal mines. So they're testing how much abuse they can get away with um, directing at a, you know, a vulnerable, marginalized group um, as a framework to, to test who else um they can go they can go after down the line and how hard they can do that and and they're sort of uh softening up society for harsher um more conservative um policy social policies in general and then the other side of it is that um and um Julianne Brandsetter from the National Center for Transgender Equality made this point to me in this piece that uh, was published actually this morning um, in the outline. Uh, you know, these uh, the way that right-wing media is organized and set up is they um, have basically um, addicted their audience to outrage and fear. Um, so... Uh, they have to continuously comb just the minute details of, of you know, any time a trans person uh, appears in public, 
um, they're trying to turn that into um, sort of a catastrophe for for the rest of society. Um, and if they all of a sudden stopped doing that, their audience would leave because the audience would go looking to, um, you know, another source for that sort of outrage fuel that they've grown almost addicted to. Um, so really it's an imperative of right-wing media to catastrophize every single thing, uh, you know, every single time a trans person makes news. I mean, how many days did they spend on that division two runner who, you know, won the NCAA division two championship in the 400 hurdles? Like they did, they spent a week on it. They're still going on that like two or three weeks after it happened. They've never once ever before reported on a division two women's race. And all of a sudden this one is the one that's going to spell, you know, doom for society. It's all just a little, um, much for me. It's just, you know, my response to these stories is, um, you know, get a life, honestly. Uh, and, but the net effect of all of this is that we constantly end up playing ball on their turf politically, right? So it's up to us to explain and have the longer conversation about trans women athletes competing with, you know, with with other women. Um, you know, it's up to us to prove that we're not a threat in the bathroom. So every new sort of conspiracy, you know, whack ball theory they come up with us, it then put uh, it. it then puts us on the defensive and and it's been a long time since we've had a chance to play, you know, offense, if you will, to talk about, you know, what we think is important because we're constantly trying to deal with these just frankly ridiculous assertions about our lives. And especially with the sports story, it's, it's the kind of thing that a responsible journalist or a responsible anchor on TV would would go to the the most obvious point when it comes to transgender athletes, which is since 2003, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, has allowed transgender athletes to compete under, I think you have to be on hormones for over a year. You have to have your testosterone levels under a certain, certain uh, <laughs> amount. And... Since 2003, we have had precisely we, we've not only had zero transgender medalists, we've we haven't had any transgender athletes in the Olympics. And every couple year or every couple news cycles, the notion of a of an invasion, yeah. the end of women's sports, just a, a, a Thanos like erasure, <laughs> a snap is coming. And, you know, you're sitting there going, you know, if if the British are coming, the British are coming. When When are they? When, when is this event? When's it going to happen? When, yeah. when do the, when is, when is this apocalypse, this doomsday scenario? If the doomsday clock is at, at midnight, if everybody says it is, why, what, what are we waiting for? It's, it's, and it, that's just such a superficial yeah. thing that any one of us, I've never ever asked a, you know, anti trans, uh, quote unquote, gender critical, uh, who are people who tend not to be that critical of gender in any other instance other than transgender issues. Um, you ask them that, that question and they, they've, 
got all this outrage for the um, theoretical, but no, no sense in the practical. It's very, it's, 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 it's very frustrating. Yeah. And, and they hold up, from, you know, and they, and they seek to hold up our, you know, our, our rights on these piddly little issues that honestly um, are, are making mountains out of molehills. So you cover uh, policy on a very broad level, mm-hmm. not not just transgender issues, but on a uh, it, it it never it it always kind of uh, makes me laugh at how often people on the right talk about like the deep state kind of, and they can do that because they can frame the government bureaucracy as like some unwieldy leviathan, and in many, in many ways it is uh, maybe a bit a bit too large in certain aspects, <laughs> but there's all this stuff that goes on beneath the level of the president's Twitter feed. <sighs> and yet when I turn on even, uh, you know, even more mainstream media, or if I just turn on the news, there's all this very, very interesting stuff going on that's happening at HHS or HUD or all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff. And yet they, it's, it's, it, it was the great, the great frustration of the past two years has been, I mean, how many A blocks of a, of a news show let off with, will the president fire Mueller or not? Okay. And I, it, it, it bothered me to no end that we have all these, these really important things going on. And a lot of the news was, was sort of more speculative in nature than anything else. Yeah, you know, um, again, again, I'm going to point to the outline piece that, that I wrote um, that came out this morning uh, because um, I was pointed to a, a recent Reuters report on the, the sort of detailed um, Vice President Mike Pence's role uh, in sort of controlling the evangelical priorities of, of the administration. And there was this quote from David McIntosh. He's the president of the Conservative Club for Growth. He said, um, one of the benefits of Trump's Twitter approach is it creates headlines, and that's what it's intended to do. And underneath those headlines, everyone else in the administration can go about peacefully doing their job. He goes on to say HHS has released several very important significant regulations that changed the nature of Obamacare, of health care, with very little coverage in the press. And he's referring specifically to the rollback of trans um, non-discrimination protections in health care and also several um, rules on access to things like birth control and um you know, abortion access. And and so to me, those two issues always go hand in hand because those are the ones that conservatives will always target first and together. Um, But the quote so perfectly illustrates that phenomenon in the media that you just described where like, you know, you turn on the news and it's, here's what Trump tweeted today. And and here's how everybody's reacting to it. The president has total control over, you know, uh, the news media agenda, um, and and what I'm seeing as somebody who loves to report on these sort of underreported policy issues, what I'm seeing is a broader failure in political journalism to truly cover the the things that the president and his administration and and. VP Mike Pence are changing um, and focusing 
to a fault on things like the Mueller report um, and whether or not there'll be impeachment. I mean, if you turn on any of the news you know, channels tonight, they'll all have panels on whether or not the Democrats should impeach the president. Um, you know, none of them are going to be covering the fact that the the House spending bill that was just passed uh, rolls back the administration's um, Title X gag rule, which bans um, reproductive health uh, providers who work within the Title X program uh, from referring patients for abortion care, um, you know, you won't see reporting on the fact that there's going to be a House, a House Oversight Committee hearing on that same Title X gag rule next week. You know, you're just not going to see that level of detail because the media on its own, you know, we talked about the right-wing media and how they catastrophize the existence of trans people, but the mainstream media has catastrophized Trump. Um, and, and they've turned every little thing you know, related to Trump and his Twitter feed into a news story. And quite frankly, I think it's a little bit, you know, of lazy journalism. I think they could do a much better job. Right. Especially when you turn on uh, C-SPAN and they're featuring hearings of people actually sort of going about doing, you know, quote unquote, the people's business, Mm -hmm. um, even if uh, some of it is grandstanding, but even the uh, the video of John Stewart speaking on behalf of the 9/11 first responders that's gone viral, mm-hmm. stuff like that kind of brings to light that there that these type of hearings that get televised and that ostensibly sort of important things could be tackled mm-hmm. happen beyond you know just the once every couple months when a big name like Michael Cohen or somebody comes on and then it becomes sort of front front. It, it becomes sort of all encompassing for all of the news mm-hmm. channels, but you're somebody who has, I, I I've noticed on Twitter sometimes when you're uh, people have pointed out, you've been in the background of some of those, <laughs> those talks. Yeah. Um, you're, I was just wondering if you could talk about just like the, the, the process of uh, covering a lot of those hearings, sort of just the, the machinations of, of going through Capitol Hill, trying to figure out what, what, what story mm-hmm. is there beyond the beyond the 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 tweet because there's just so much there's so much going on yeah and there's you know there's um you know i've been been doing this for a little while now so like i have um mostly i find out about these things through email (laughs) um you know whether it's uh an organization who's having one of their staff people um testify or whatnot um it's a lot of times I'll, I'll get emails directly from members of Congress or, or the staff of, of members of Congress about um, these hearings that are going on. And, and, and um, you know, uh, they'll send press releases about it. And that's how I usually learn about um these hearings and, and where, when and where they're going on. It's interesting. Um, last year, uh, I spent a lot of time on the Senate side because that's sort of where things were happening. Democrats had enough votes to sort of um, muck up the legislative process. Um, so, right. you know, there had to be a little bit of cooperation from 
Republicans to, to enact any sort of legislative agenda. Uh, and then this year, with the Democrats retaking the House, you know, a lot there's a lot of action on the House side. Um, you know, the Senate has become, as Nancy Pelosi has uh, re- sort of relentlessly pointed out, a place where where bills go to die. They just don't pass a lot of bills anymore. They're focused solely on appointing conservative judges to the federal courts, um, and they just ignore the bills that the House sends them. Um, and with Democrats in control, they can sort of um, they can investigate more broadly or they have more of an imperative to investigate the Trump administration. So you're starting to see, uh, you know, a lot more action on the house side of things, um, which is, which is both good and bad. You know, it's good because we're starting to get hearings on things like the title 10, you know, program. It's bad because I don't know where I'm going yet on the Senate side. I'm still learning. (laughs) I have mostly an idea, but yeah, how much of the Senate uh, changes do you think are 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 a, are a result of the fact that they have a a bit more uh, leeway? They have one or two seats, but then also just uh, John McCain, Thad Cochran, who were votes who were con- who were uh, senators who mm-hmm. because of health issues, and they're both deceased. But the fact, just the simple fact that they weren't there, also kind of held up business with with that right yeah and and republicans of course expanded their majority in the last election in the senate so um they really don't need as much cooperation from the democrats so they don't have any imperative to try to achieve any sort of bipartisanship it's just sort of all of the republicans voting as one with maybe susan collins or lisa murkowski splitting off from them and then frequently you're seeing um Joe Manchin, uh, the Democrat from West Virginia, joining in with Republicans. Um, and of course, politically, you know, that's for him, that's a smart move because, you know, his state was right. went 68% for Trump in the last election. So crossing the president is probably a bad idea on his part. But at the same time, it's really frustrating to have basically an empty Dem seat that's just uh, a Republican that occasionally votes with Democrats. Um, well, the hearings, um, one thing, especially uh, during the week of transgender visibility in March, when all of the politicians were putting up the they got a lot of smack for how the creases were still there. I've had one up on my wall for <laughs> like three or four years now, and the creases yeah. are still there. So I, I just to give them a pass on that. But one thing, whenever they would tweet about whatever they would tweet their picture, I would say, please, I, I would look up what committee mm-hmm. they were on and I'd say, please use like. Please use your power is in the House to bring forth somebody from the, the Department of Defense, bring somebody from the Pentagon there and grill them about gender dysphoria because all of the, the, the all of the guidelines regarding the transgender mm-hmm. military ban are, are rooted in very stupid and ridiculous policy. And I, I just I, I would love it if, you know, putting up the flag is like the, you know, we support you equivalent of thought, thoughts and prayers. Like it's, it's funny when the yeah. singer of smash mouth puts up a, I support trans rights thing. I don't need yeah. the congressman to do it. Um, yeah. I, you know, um, I, what I find most frustrating is, you know, we had hearings on the equality act, which great. You have to have hearings to pass that bill. We've had hearings on a bill, um, to, uh, 
that would lift the transgender uh, military ban. Um, but we haven't seen a lot of trans policy hearings, right? Like, I don't understand why there's nobody um, that's called a hearing to investigate, you know, uh, all of the anti-trans moves the administration has made already, right? Like, it's clearly an organized effort on the administration's part. Why not, you know, call a hearing and call administration witnesses um, from each of these departments and, and see what is going on there. And and that's the frustrating part for me as somebody who is trans, uh, but also has an understanding of how the legislative and investigative process works on the Hill is, you know, it's all well and good to have, you know, to tweet out, you know, pride tweets or tweet on trans day of visibility. Um, but if you're not, you know, actually doing the work on these things, those are empty promises. Those are empty tweets. And, and you know, I can take them or leave them. Right. I, I actually in the um, while we were recording, I yes, I think it was it was either yesterday or the day before uh, Beto O'Rourke sent uh, he emailed out his big LGBTQ plan. And I actually I, I read through it and it was um, he gets criticized a lot for being a little wishy washy and not not big on policy. But I, I thought that what he did was very um thorough and i emailed his i don't know why i'm on his press email list or who put me there but i emailed back i said hey i read all this stuff i think it's interesting what i didn't see was um what does what does beto plan to do when the equality act whether it's now or whether it's in two years if he ever did get elected president um what would what would you do when that dies as a result of the 60 vote requirement in the in the senate and mm-hmm. I heard back, uh, they said, they, they gave me a comment that I can attribute to a, a Beto, uh, spokesperson, but it, it has nothing on that. They didn't answer my question at all. It's a paragraph <laughs> of Beto will take immediate executive action to end the assault. I mean, executive action, we, uh, obviously, uh, the Obama administration did a lot of things that helped transgender people immensely, mm-hmm. but I mean, the, 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 the crowning achievement, uh, at, at least in my eyes, was that was what was codified into law via the Affordable Care Act, which uh, made healthcare, um, uh, uh, transgender-related healthcare, uh, a pre-existing condition. I think that's really the one. Um, and obviously, the Trump administration has been trying hard to roll that back. But just at le- at least from a practical day-to-day life, the mm-hmm. thing that really impacts my life is is that single thing. And I'm looking, saying to myself, okay. The Senate has changed drastically since when the when the Senate had uh, the votes required to get Obamacare through. Um, what do you like? What are you going to do about that? And I had no answer. It, 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 it's, it's great that he can. It, it's great that we have presidential candidates nowadays to acknowledge that transgender women of color are, are being murdered at a very uncomfortably uh, high rate right now. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but. For all the times I hear that that transgender bathrooms caused the uh, Democrats to lose in 2016, I, I don't know about you, but I don't seem to remember that being a huge pillar of the Hillary Clinton campaign. No, it's honestly um, they've they've sort of reversed the um, 
the the dynamics on this issue it's really being directed by those on on the right like all this anti-trans stuff is in the the basic gop you know political platform it was you know it was all right there during the 2016 campaign we could all read it um and uh it's really the 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 agenda on this is really being pushed by those on the right because they see it as a winning political issue for themselves. Um, and, and that's really frustrating because that they've also managed to somehow change the perception on this to, oh, the trans people are jamming this stuff down, their, down our throats. Um, and that's just not accurate. We just kind of want to be left alone. Um, right. Well, I don't know what transgender people in the mainstream would are, are there to push it down anyone's throat anyway. Yeah. Um, but it uh, you wrote an article this the this past fall, right around the time that the uh, uh, that the the New York Times article came out about how the Trump mm -hmm. administration was trying to erase what it what it even means to be trans, mm -hmm. and you brought up a, a point that I really frustrated me around that time was that. While that was going on, the media was um, fixated on what President Trump decided would be a better message to run on rather than anything he had done. And that was the, the migrant caravan that ended up, you know, being like some dangly, shiny object for the media to fixate about for a while. And then there was no follow up of the fact that like that that wasn't actually an invasion. They 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 fact checked it in real time, but also covered it ad nauseum in real time. And I had a bunch of news shows set to record and they wouldn't talk about the transgender uh, po policy reversal or no. at all until like you, you, you'd maybe get it in the D block or the E block right, right. around, you know, for, for two seconds. It was yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, it's just not not a priority um, for these news organizations. And it's really sad. Well, it, I guess the point that frustrates me more is, is just this, and, and this is something that your article today, which, um, is, is so important, but highlighted is just the simple fact that when the media does cover these issues and, and they do on a, I guess, semi-regularly basis, they make very obvious mistakes yeah. in an article you'd written, um, a while ago, you'd pointed out the obvious of, you can be you can you can turn on MSNBC, sit there and listen to a talk about transgender people and have us referred to as as transgenders, yeah. which. Uh, plenty of people use, sure, but like w when you say like that's not correct and somebody says like, well, I didn't know. And you're like, well, does that sound right <sighs> to you? You know, transgender sounds like a. Uh, yeah, no, it absolutely is. And I, I, I guess because it, it, it also between the transgenders and um, I had a I had a discussion with a freelance critic for The Guardian about his article had been edited, apparently to include the word uh, to have the, the, the phrase uh, transgenderism, which mm -hmm. is a beloved word yeah. on the right. Yeah. He had that that was actually edited into his article. He didn't take he didn't take responsibility for it being there because when I called him out on it, I'm like, you know, maybe you shouldn't. It was a it was a review for the the Chelsea Manning uh, mm -hmm. documentary that just came out. And I said um, he, he wrote this paragraph of like a sentence that was basically like 
she notes that her transgenderism didn't wasn't a driving force in her decision to to leak uh to leak to WikiLeaks, and it's like that's ridiculous. Like who who would who would like it's it's great that you cleared that you cleared that notion up, but I don't think anybody was really thinking that to begin with. Yeah, but, uh, that's ridiculous. Like the like a dog chewing up a newspaper because the <laughs> owner didn't pet it enough. Like yeah. it, it it read like that, and I said to him, and he's like, I, I didn't write the his his response was I didn't put the word transgenderism in there, and actually they issued a correction. He seemed genuinely miffed that he was getting attacked for that. Um. But I kept trying to say to him, like, look, and, and he countered by saying that it was a point brought in the, um, that it was a, a point that the documentary had mentioned. But I, I guess that also kind of plays into the the broader, just problem with transgender, uh, with with the way the media approaches transgender topics, which is we're kind of like, I, I feel like a lot of times even the mainstream media approaches us from a perspective of like like they're at the zoo looking in yeah. at what these people are doing versus like actual members of society who are, you know, their peers. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It's um, it's frustrating, and and I think the only way that you fix that is by hiring more, you know, trans and and other LGBT you know, reporters to write some of these stories. It's, uh, I just don't see another way around it. You know, you can't force um, a reporter who doesn't, you know, see us as fully human to, to see us as fully human. So, you know, we got to hire people who do. And, and for the, for, for transgender people, we're not so, so much of the political topics are framed from the right, left perspective. I mean, transgender people are not, wholly beloved by the the entire left as, no, as you mentioned. not at all and it, it I, I encounter plenty of like very uh well-meaning people um every, who who who, who want to like get get educated on this topic but even like it's just it's so frustrating that uh you can Google transgenders and figure out in two seconds if that term is bad or not. It's right there. Yeah. It's on the front page of Google. It's very easy. Um, it concerns me that the, the the will to even do that isn't there. And as you noted earlier, reproductive health and transgender health care are, are way more linked just in terms of, of being objects of attack from the right that anyone wants to give, it, give them credit for. Mm-hmm. And you got all these people chasing the shiny object of impeachment, which isn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I even this this podcast, our second episode was on impeachment and the Mueller report actually came out as I was recording it. <laughs> and it changed very little of what I was right. doing because I was, I was just like, yeah, this is going nowhere. He's not going to be impeached. We will spend countless hours covering it. But I, I, it yeah, it's it's. That that's one end of the media frustration, but another thing that I, I guess why your career is so fascinating to me mm-hmm. or just interesting to read about is you are a uh, you're a journalist who's not trying to cover I- exclusively the transgender beat. I imagine you get a lot of work that's tailored toward LGBTQ topics, mm-hmm. um, but you're 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 a journalist. You're not a laser focus and i imagine to a to a large extent that's that's something you'd like to not have to cover the transgender <laughs> topics as, as thoroughly as 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 
what needs to be given yeah. the current administration. I mean, if I don't do it, who will? <laughs> uh, that's yeah. sort of the attitude that I bring to it anyway. Well, I mean, there's always the, and this is an issue that uh, we, we encounter in film a lot of the, you know, who who's the best person to write about trans topics or, or, or film trans topics. And obviously it's trans people, but then on the flip side, it's not like, okay, you don't want your, your day-to-day life to just be following this singular issue around. And yet, yet the, the, the broader, I guess like the, 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 the next like milestone of equality that would be great is if the media says to themselves, okay, not only will we actually hire trans people now, let's just hire trans people to cover whatever, like things that they're actually like, good yeah. at. I mean, I, I don't even like, know what I'm good at. Like, I, you know, I feel this responsibility to cover these issues the way they deserve to be covered. And, and I, you know, I think about this a lot, like what else, if these weren't relevant issues, like what else would I enjoy covering? And I have a lot of sort of complicated feelings about, about that. I mean, I'm really passionate and I've always been passionate about reproductive health, um, and not just because I think they're that's so closely linked to trans issues, um, but you know it's an interesting thought experiment, uh, experiment for me as a reporter to think about like what else would I cover if it wasn't for this? Um, and I'm not sure I fully have an answer to that. You know, I'd probably end up a sports reporter for being honest. Yeah, that. Um, I mean, I'm a baseball fanatic. <laughs> I don't. Um... You go to a lot of nationals. Games? I've never been to a national game, a nationals game, but I'm going oh. next week, a week from today, actually, with my friend Laurel. The first thing I do if I'm traveling to a new city is I, I try to check their local schedule to see <laughs> if their teams are in town. Baseball is my big jam, but uh, hockey I love. I a walked lot. by the stadium once, um, a couple of times actually. I went to an abortion fundraiser down in that neighborhood, and then. I walked past it to get to the DC United Stadium, which is the local soccer team. All right. I did go to yeah. a DC United game once last year, but that's really about the extent of my DC sports experience. It's um, a pretty bleak scene, to be honest. There are, um, there are some uh, good, great publications covering uh, sports with LGBT athletes. It, it's very frustrating for me also to see um, we have the Dodgers and the Angels in mm-hmm. town. Um, they have their Pride Nights. Um, I imagine their teams are still quite homophobic if the if last year's issue surrounding the Cubs and Daniel Murphy is any uh, indicator. Um, I, I would love to like. I, I guess I guess it's good from that end to see corporations like. I I, I kind of laugh about thinking if there's some players there who are maybe anti uh, who have some homophobic views, maybe it's good that they have to play their game that night under the spotlight of giant rainbows. Yeah. Everywhere. Maybe that's, that's the, cause I guess, I guess one benefit of, of sort of, um, I even saw somebody, there was some article that came out yesterday about how an increasing number of Texans are uh, approving of, uh, transgender rights and i was in dallas last year for a game of thrones convention <laughs> and i was treated uh pretty well and i went to the i went to a rangers game and had a blast there and i i i think if the media things like pose for example are great 
in, in the in the from the perspective of having a trans narrative made by trans people air on a network like mm-hmm. FX and have it have it compete well and all of that versus I don't know the controversy surrounding uh, Bohemian Rhapsody right. or not explicitly gay Dumbledore or like transparent. Uh, oh God! Oh, oh, that's a that's a let's not let's not go there. Oh, uh, no, no, we have a. Um, I'm actually having a person who's kind of friends with Jill Stalloway on in the future, and we will not. Um. <laughs> I it, it thing things though like um I, I guess any I I even I was flicking on the TV yesterday and um Boys Don't Cry was on mm-hmm. and then uh, on the guide the Danish girl was supposed to was starting uh on the the on a different one of the HBO channels right next to it I'm sitting there being like okay here are two transgender narratives airing HBO's airing both of the on their their fleet of channels but. They're airing both today, and these are both very subpar transgender narratives. But um, at least, at, at at least somebody watching can have a uh, I don't know better idea of um, I don't even know if it's fair to say that uh, one of those films would give somebody a better idea of what it's like to be trans. Especially, Boys Don't Cry aired uh, was so long ago, but. Um, I've tried to be kind of in the camp of all exposure is good exposure. I mean, not, not, not literally like bad exposure, obviously, but, um, like, I mean, plenty of, plenty of transgender people have, uh, complex views on, on Caitlyn Jenner, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, I, for one, am very grateful that the media had its just like collective, just shitstorm about, all of her, uh, you know, the awards that she received and all of that. I, I, in a lot of ways, it was good they got it out of their system. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, I keep trying to think about where transgender media, where transgender people in media and all of that, where, where do we go from here in a moment? And it's so difficult right now because it's the year 2019. There's tons of, uh, great breakthroughs in um yeah. for transgender people on on so many uh different fronts i was i did an article for uh rotten tomatoes editorial uh for their pride celebration on a fantastic woman mm-hmm. which came out I, I guess at the tail end of 2017 it won last year uh at the oscars for um best foreign film and it, it frustrates me a little bit that up in a way, the sort of most down-to-earth, realistic transgender portrayal uh, of sort of what it's like to be a modern trans woman came from Chile. Because it's like, can we have something in America that comes close to this? Like, how? why is it that hard? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. Um, it's just, it, it's, it's frustrating uh, because we don't... <sighs> um, we don't, we don't, we don't, con- we don't have any of that power right like there aren't any like specifically trans focused publications we're, we're kind of like where um you know cis gay media was back in like 2000 in the mid 2000s like around the time that ellen degeneres came out and you started to see more yeah. and more you know gay and lesbian celebrities come out 
we're sort of in that period. There's a lot of similarities between then and now in the media, um, you know, and, and back in that's sort of the time when, um, uh, you know, sites so like After Ellen, before they turned oh, really yeah. transphobic, uh, started up. And, you know, they did really great work for a long time before they were sold to a bunch of transphobes. But, um, you know, Autostraddle came to be around that same time. And, and um, I would love to see just a national level publication that is just for trans people that, that run in a similar vein to, you know, the auto straddles and the, and, and, and the old after Ellen's, right. Uh-huh. Like, um, I actually just made a tweet cause this thought hit me while we were talking. Um, but I just tweeted, uh, I said a trans publication called after Laverne, right. Because like Laverne, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I'm thinking of that transgender tipping point, um, article yeah. that was on the cover of Time Magazine. Like, where do we go from here? We we don't have a media apparatus to sort of um, be our guiding light um, in, in a lot of this stuff. And I wish we did. And and I don't know that I'm the person to, um, you know, bring that to be. But I think that's something that we desperately need. Like, you know, even now, I mean, I think LGBT media in general does a really good job mostly of covering trans issues. Um, but the decision makers largely at those publications are not trans people, right? Like right. some of them, you know, most of them are good about having trans writers write trans content, but the people at the top who are making decisions about whether or not to continue publishing or, you know, what the editorial direction on these things are, um, are not trans people. And, and I would just like to see one publication for crying out loud, um, be that for our community. Um, and I just don't know if it's feasible or possible, but, um, you know, if somebody wanted to get that going on their own, like, you know, I, I would go to work for them in a heartbeat because I think it's that important. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the question of feasibility with a topic like that is so just kind of interesting to think about because anti-trans content makes up, a, it's always, whenever, whenever you're talking about like sort of transgender issues on a, on a macro level, it, it is always kind of important to acknowledge that we make up a, a very, you know, a small sliver of, of the, total american population really a little over a million not not <laughs> many and yet anti-transgender topics um make up so much of the right-wing media it's like okay if it's if 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 the you know the let the hate flow through you like emperor <laughs> Palpatine style uh narrative if that's if that's so strong uh-huh. then why why can't we have um something like you were describing it's and and there's i I guess like a lot of the not the people who are 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 like journalists or um but just like like people like contrapoints or a lot of people on instagram or whatnot that have built up like huge followings are are like like seemingly it it i'm trying to think of what my point was (laughs) um it it feels like our our like the 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 big cultural people the cultural trans people are all kind of in more singular entities and not 
working for a bigger publication or part of some some kind of network like that? Yeah, no, I think I think you're right in that regard. And uh, well, ContraPoints in particular is somebody who has been the subject of um, quite a few uh, uh, media pieces. And I just wonder, like. She brings such a multifaceted uh, perspective to a lot of these topics. Why some place like The Atlantic, which uh, seems to think that uh, only old, only old white men can write uh, 10,000 word pieces. Mm -hmm. um, Why can't they open up the uh, open up their umbrella a bit to let some other voices inside? I mean, are you just this might be a tough one, but do you do you as a journalist feel like you could write 10,000 words. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> like, that's a joke. Um, yeah, of course I could write 10,000 words. I mean, I've written 10,000 words in the last week, you know, between the drafts that I've written and the transcribing that I've done, you know, like uh, the just the drafts that I've written over the last two weeks, I've written well over 10,000 words. Like it's not that, big of a deal like i <clears throat> have a piece coming out tomorrow that i was assigned yesterday and um you know i found five sources for the piece i had to turn away like three or four more um and i wrote the story but the source material that i'm working with is like six pages long just from the transcriptions um and i did that in two days right like i could have ended up i probably could have written a five thousand word piece on this topic um, for this piece tomorrow in two days. Like it's not, it's not some great challenge to just bang out a 10,000 word article. What you really need to do is look at the subtext of, and I think when you say 10,000 words and how difficult it is, you're sort of subtweeting uh, Jeffrey Goldberg at the Atlantic who, you know, had some, um, you could say controversial comments about who can, can't, and, and should and shouldn't be writing cover stories for them, which are, you know, typically 10,000 words. Um, and, and the key phrase for me wasn't, you know, um, the men, you know, he said the men who, the men who are the people who do this are largely white men. It was, you know, we need to train women to flex this particular journalistic muscle. And when he said that, like that to me was code for you need to learn how to write and pitch the things that I'm interested in. Right. And, and that's where I think that these, you know, cishets, you know, white men sort of, um, this is their uh, their lack of perspective on things. Um, they don't even notice themselves commissioning stories that they like, right? Like they, you know, um, the 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 one of the biggest problems with with white men in publishing is is they think that their interests are the most important interests. So, um, you know, they see themselves as sort of a default demographic, uh, of America or the world. Um, so the things that they are interested in are automatically sort of elevated in their minds. Um, and when, when I see somebody like Jeffrey Goldberg saying, you know, women need to learn to how to, uh, exercise this particular, um, journalistic muscle what what he's really saying to me is these women need to write about 
issues from angles that I like. And that's the whole problem. Um, yeah, I, I saw a lot of that kind of dynamic of what you're describing um, in place when uh, with the box office success of uh, both Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians, there are all these stories about framing kind of their success as a surprise. And I'm sitting there being like this, this, who is this a surprise to? Like it, 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 these, these demographics I could have, I could have sat and in a couple hours provided a reasonable case for a, a, a well-written, um, well-written movies like the two of those would would obviously be strong contenders in a market. It, the the data was there. It was it was the will from the top to um, take a like mainstream out, out, outlet like Marvel and say, okay, let's let's give the let's give out this mm-hmm. opportunity. The the that notion of whether or not that opportunity would be a success, I, I don't think was as ever in question as anybody in a position of power was ever giving it credit for. And it's, it's a point of immense frustration because we, the more like the more you just read about how the journalistic bacon is made it with just like people commenting in a Slack channel of a pitch. And they're just, they're, they're, they're giving the work to the people they know, the people they schmooze with <laughs> at cocktail parties. And, um, then they're, they're 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 looking at this broad representation issue, not from a how do we incorporate these ideas, but how do we how do we maintain the status quo as uh, as as closely as possible? Yeah, it's you know it's it's hard to it's hard to get established you know in this sort of journalistic marketplace. Uh, that's probably the biggest thing. Like people aren't supposed to be able to do what I did with my career. You know, I started just self-publishing personal essays. And then I started, you know, having personal essays commissioned at professional outlets. And I sort of have graduated along the way into more serious reporting. Um, But what I see a lot of is, um, you know, uh, people get really comfortable with one style of writing um, and, and they sort of stay there. Right. So if you're really good at writing an op-ed, you become an op-ed yeah. writer. If you're really good at, you know, writing personal stuff, you're a memoirist or you're a personal essay writer and they tend to stay with that stuff. And I think, you know, for me, what, what has led to the career that I have is I have a willingness to like reinvent the wheel several times. Um, because uh-huh. if you go back and you look at my really early work, it was all, you know, basically personal essays there's a little bit of like opinion stuff and there was no reporting and then I sort of self-taught myself how to report because I saw that my personal essays weren't you know that like there was a time in like 2006 where personal essays were like really hot and I think you know I even missed the peak of that I think 2014 and 15 like personal the personal essay market was just really hot like they were commissioning it everything you know, I saw that over the course of 2016, my personal essay, you know, pitch acceptance rate was getting lower and lower. So I, I sort of looked at, you know, what, what is getting commissioned at the places that I want to write? And I saw that there was a mix of personal and reported stuff. So I started, you know, telling myself, okay, I need experience reporting on things. I had no idea how to do that. I sort of had to self teach myself. I had to do a lot of this stuff. And then I eventually, you know, have gotten to this place where I can now write, 
you know, three or four different styles. I can write, you know, a long feature. I can write, you know, more investigative stuff. I can write breaking news. Uh, breaking news is probably my favorite um, and most comfortable genre just because I tend to work really quickly a lot of the times um, if I'm under a deadline. And, you know, I can write personal essays. Um, you know, I can write op-eds. Like, these are all, like, sort of tools in my tool belt that has really helped me weather these changes in the freelancing market, if you will. Um, and I think that's sort of the missing piece that, that a lot of people, especially trans writers, um, struggle with. Um, and it's hard, you know, just to navigate those uh you know, dynamics, much less like trying to figure out who and where to pitch your ideas and, and like figuring out what is an appropriate venue for your, for your articles. And, um, what I would really love to do, and I don't know that I have the resources to pull this off, but I would love to do like a fellowship where I take one, um, where I take t like two or three fellows and I edit them and then their stuff runs, like in a, in a more prestigious outlet um, to start with. Yeah, exactly. Those those kind of yeah those kind of opportunities uh, exist in a lot of outlets, but um, yeah, like I'd love to take like a trans woman or a trans feminine person, a trans masculine person, non-binary person, and um, you know, and, and and do a fellowship with, with three people and just get their stuff placed. Um, you know, at a place like, oh, I don't know. Um, you, you know, maybe not like the top, yeah, yeah. The top outlets, but like the mid-level outlets, right? Like Vice was a really important place for me to get published in my career. And, and I sort of lost contact with their editors there now. But like a place like Vice is a really good, you know, um, way to to sort of launch into a more mainstream uh -huh. you know publishing career um that was certainly the case for me and, and several other trans writers that i know so well a, a lot of their reporting has um I, i've liked it it's upsetting to see that hbo is uh ending its relationship with them because in terms of like nightly news i find myself i i'm a cable news junkie i i love i just i love the theatrics of it i soap opera um and it, it's trashy but i i enjoy watching it but i find myself like increasingly going to like pbs news hour or previously vice just to like okay i don't want just impeachment speculation ad nauseum i i i you could tell me ian you have to write everybody's lines for this i could write every character as as you could interpret what they were saying but um i think what you were uh talking about with fellowships or exposure it's it's um really important for our community and i'm glad uh it seems like a good um i i always like to sort of try and figure out what the optimistic way to sort of look look ahead because it's just with all the trump stuff it's very uh it's easy to get uh uh easy to come down about it and the news is often so dour that obviously you'd want to but um there are a lot of opportunities for trans people mm -hmm. nowadays that uh give me a lot of hope and um that's certainly uh it, i always like to you know it, it's uh stuff like the the story last fall with the 
trying to erase the term transgender, like scare the shit out of you. But it's nice to like wake up in the morning and uh, think that the day could be nicer than the the way things uh, had been going. Yeah. Um, I was going to, I had in my head planned to uh, ask you sort of a final question uh, to end on a more lighthearted note, because um, I know you're a, uh, I, I know you recently got a Nintendo Switch and this podcast loves to talk about video. We, we've done a lot of video game episodes on yeah. Sega, on uh, Nintendo and Panasonic. Um, what, uh, what games are you playing right now that you're enjoying? So actually, the the game I'm playing the most right now is not on my Switch, uh, but it's um, you know I'm you know I don't know it's Overwatch. Um, I have that I have that for PlayStation. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's on the PC. Um, it's sort of my way to uh, just sort of escape into the ether after a day of like writing and reporting about these awful <laughs> awful things. Yeah. Um, but you know. I, since I've gone to full-time freelancing, I've had a lot more free time to play and I've gotten pretty good at the game. Um, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Um, but yeah, that's my favorite right now. And then, um, you know, every couple of weeks I have some friends that like to come over and we play smash on the switch. Um, so that awesome. would probably be the other, the other game I've been playing a lot of. And then I, I have the, um, the uh, NES games on Switch, so I, I play oh, some fun. of my childhood favorites, like uh, Punch Out, or um, you know, I actually I think I'm the only one that actually likes Zelda Two. Uh, yeah, you might. I I, I had it's, yeah Adventures of Link. Yeah, that's not. A, I don't know. I I um we we just did an N64 podcast, and I um I I can't enjoy Majora's Mask because I'm punctuality is my greatest anxiety <laughs> and I, I I just it's a beautiful world that I feel like I can enjoy but yeah. um from the NES perspective the ice hockey that was for NES is yeah, um that's a good one that's like what it's it, it's kind of like it took the theory of Pong and 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 stretched it about as far as like it could go and it's sort of uh it's an it, addictive it, game though very good I I like that yeah. a lot um that's uh. It's always I I love uh, when when I when I named this podcast Estradi Illusions it was like a, a nod to to being trans but um, it's always great to just you know hear about transgender people interest in all of that uh, you had written I guess to end on um, you had written an uh, article about how it's time for the media to retire the sad transgender trope mm-hmm. and I, I I couldn't agree more and. It's been um, really great to talk to you about policy and what you're doing and what you enjoy because, um, you know, try as Trump might, uh, our, our our lives uh, as as people who are out of the closet and living, um, you can only imagine that uh, deep down Mike Pence is still sort of just angry about all of the things that he and his people have failed to do over the past, you know, 10 years or so and all of the progress we've made. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I I just I try to uh, downer that uh, it's always good to um, talk talk with other trans people about things that aren't you know just intrinsically linked to the the pain and suffering, which seems to you know w- with the media. I think the media forgets that a lot of us wake up and live very normal lives. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, a girl can dream. <laughs> well, uh, 
we really we really appreciate having you on, Caitlin. It's uh, you're a major major voice in the community with your uh, all of your journalism and all of the stuff you've covered, and your articles are always uh, worth a read. You bring a, a great perspective, and um, um, thank you so much for for coming on and yeah. uh, talking a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It was fun having me on any time. Awesome. Yeah, I would. Uh, anytime you want to come back, that uh, we have a we have an open door policy for most of our guests, but especially <laughs> our, our fellow trans guests. And to everybody listening, uh, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>